The funny thing about Solana is that they are the Bitcoin Cash big blockers of the Ethereum utility chain space. They totally are. And they seem to be suffering a similar fate as we sit down to record right now. Solana's down again. They've had an outage. I think it's back online now, but the price is down 70% just since April of this year. It's because all of these chains outside of Bitcoin, caveat, maybe with the exception of Monero, they do something, they kind of look and smell like Bitcoin, but what their real purpose is, is to confuse people with technology so that there's a community that is kind of gathers around this project. But all of these projects are centrally controlled. The tokens are centrally held by the either the developers or the f- first investors. And that community around the project is their exit liquidity. Yeah. Yeah, they are. That's how the investors get their money back, is that community who just keeps putting money in. And it, they just had another outage yesterday as we record. Incredible. Uh, and right now, the network is experiencing, quote unquote, slowness and congestion. <laughs> but I thought it was a high throughput, high right. speed blockchain. Funny how that keeps happening. Yeah, I think that's how we have to keep talking about it is the communities around these crazy crypto projects are the liquidity for the investor. They're the exit liquidity. And if you're okay with that, then uh, have fun. Well, if you're okay with that, it's because you think you're smarter than the next guy. And if that's your point of view, I don't think there's anything we can say that'll change your mind. No, I agree. And I think it's a very Bitcoin dad perspective of you to take on the map. Speaking of which, this is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, June 3rd, 2022. I'm the Bitcoin Dad and I'm here with me, Chris. Chris. It's me. Hi. Hi. Can I? What a great week it's been. Can I sit down now? Yeah, let's go ahead and sit down and get comfortable because we got a lot to get into. I just always stand up when you introduce yourself. (laughs) Yeah, I also appreciate you taking off the top hat, too. I'm going to put it back on now. Yeah, you got to record with your hat on. Right. We're, we're not animals. <laughs> we're gentlemen over here. <laughs> Although the people in the anti-crypto lobbying group, not, not such gentlemen, are they? Or ladies, I'd say. I would agree. So today, we are going to discuss quite a few news items. There's going to be a focus on economics because there have been some interesting reports that have come out and articles. We're going to take a detour to tokenomics because it's just so funny. In particular, I've mentioned Richard Hart, the hex spam king before, but I found another article about him and there was something interesting in there, so we'll bring it up. We punched down on Ethereum again because while it's fun and amusing to do... They earned it too. You'll find out why. They earned it. They definitely earned it, but also, as we were discussing in the intro, pre-show, pre-show, maybe? In the pre-show, our view is that most altcoin communities are the exit liquidity for the insiders in those communities. So we're going to poke all of these problems. We want to get these people thinking so that they can get over their altcoin shenanigans before they get too hurt and come to Bitcoin. And then we have a privacy section, including an article by friend of the show, Seth for Privacy, where he talks about Bitcoin privacy improvement technologies, which is just a really useful bit of journalism. And then in Bitcoin education, we have a very short Bitcoin Optech newsletter that lets you know the latest developments in Bitcoin development. I said development many times in that Did sentence. You? Well, there's a lot going on. Well, or, or not this week. We'll see. Yeah. But I mean, development-wise, there's always a lot going on. Even when the, even when the uh, overall news climate might be slow, there's always people plugging away back in. And I also put something that I think may be controversial into Bitcoin education, which is an article called The Progressive Case for Bitcoin. 
And so it's a thought about who Bitcoin is for, who Bitcoin targets, and how the distribution of Bitcoin will affect the world depending on who owns it. Yeah. Interesting. All right. I'll brace myself. Cool. So shall we jump into anti-crypto lobbying and annoying Twitter avatars? Yeah, just as an aside, uh, everybody with the cutesy little cartoon avatar where you use that app on your phone to generate an avatar that looks just like you, and you set that as your profile picture online, stop it. No more. Let's just stop. Just stop it. I don't like it. I can't take this Stefan guy seriously when he has a cartoon picture of himself. He looks like he should be in like some sort of anime movie fighting an octopus. So this is a guy who gets engagement on Twitter by saying dumb things about Bitcoin. And then I'm a rube, so I reply with the correct information. But then I've amplified the voice of a dum-dum who wasn't conversing in good faith. They do manage to get you, though. <laughs> yeah. And this person is promoting a letter to Washington, which is a very amusing letter. And the TLDR, and this is my interpretation, is, oh, no, the quote-unquote crypto industry is lobbying. That's bad. We should resist this lobbying. So let's lobby some more. So let's lobby against yeah. the lobbying. Yeah, that's what they're doing. And their big opening piece is that they have names of people who I've actually witnessed on, on Twitter pop off about Bitcoin. And I've always been, I've actually talked to you privately about this. Like, I've been really disappointed because individuals like Bruce Schneier and Miguel de Casa, who I respect a lot of their work, it's like you see them tweet about something and you read it and you go, oh, they don't, they don't know what they're talking about. These people, because they're so intelligent in the computer sciences field, that when something comes along, they think they inherently understand it because it's technical and they look at it and they think, Oh, no, they for some reason they make a determination it's not valid. And they're so supremely confident in their opinion because of how established they are in the tech industry. And so for me, it's been hard reading these guys tweet about stuff and post about Bitcoin and quote unquote crypto and just learning that they clearly don't know what they're talking about and they're not humble enough to reevaluate some of their assumptions. So this group of people amongst uh, a Google Cloud engineer and 26 quote unquote leading computer scientists and academics signed a letter to U.S. lawmakers to say, don't don't allow the crypto industry to lobby. And the joke is that the fellow who's promoting this deal, he actually, if you go onto his GitHub, there's a lot of blockchain, private blockchain stuff there. So this is a guy who basically wants to shill a private blockchain company. And there's an old website. The product is called Uplink, which interestingly is a ripoff of one of the best hacking simulator games from the 2000s. Did you ever play that? I recall it, actually. Yes, I never did play it, but I do recall it. Yeah, that was like the game that made me think, man, computers might be really cool. But it turns out that hacking is not a cool graphical interface and instead, it's probably a slow, boring, sweaty person yeah. <laughs> in a hunched over a laptop, very lonely. You know, this has a couple of quotes in here. You know, when you hear about just generalities like this, right? Because there's something now like 19,000 different cryptocurrencies out there. So you can't just make a singular statement about 19,000 different technology stacks. It's just not possible, right? But, and you'd think Schneier would know that, but Bruce Schneier writes that, quote, the claims that the blockchain advocates make are not true. Blockchains are not secure. They are not decentralized. Any system where you forget your password and you lose your life savings is not as safe. So he's convoluting multiple different blockchain technologies, and he's convoluting an entirely different problem, right? Because he's thinking of it as like a debit card and not like gold or some sort of other asset. It's a muddled sentence. It shows he doesn't actually understand what he's talking about. Sure. Another good takeaway, someone named De Casa says, we're essentially wasting millions of dollars worth of equipment because we've decided that we don't trust the banking system. He's clearly 
ridiculing the conclusion that some people don't trust the banking system. And that's a very first world point of view. To your point, Miguel has sold a couple of companies and he's worked for Microsoft as a very high paid level person. So Miguel has done very well. You sold a couple of companies. Good for you. That doesn't mean you know anything about decentralized technology or economics. It means that you have a very specific skill set around selling companies. To my point, actually, what I was the point I was making there, the current system has serviced him very well. He's made a lot of money. He lives a very comfortable life. These are the types of folks that are going to have the hardest time understanding the economic side of it, right? They might understand some of the blockchain. Like if Bruce Schneier looks at Solana or Miguel Adicazzo looks at Solana and does a real evaluation, yeah, they're going to realize it's a piece of crap and they're going to have a bad opinion. It doesn't mean they'll understand anything about the economic. That's a good point. And actually that leads really well into an article that I read years ago, but I think it popped up again recently called, I think something along the lines of the yuppie elite don't get Bitcoin. And the article makes an interesting point. There's a funny meme in it where there's a bell curve. And on one side, there is a very dumb crypto bro being lol, Bitcoin, 300K. And then in the middle, there's a regular person saying Bitcoin is worthless. And then on the high end of the bell curve with the geniuses, it's a genius saying Bitcoin, 300K. (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of the problem in some ways with the Bitcoin community, because there are a lot of people who are very right about Bitcoin for all the wrong reasons. And it's easy to dismiss them. And so one problem with understanding the disruptive potential and the value of Bitcoin is that if it's disrupting you, you don't like it. And if the status quo works for you, you're not going to like it. So I think that for people like that, talking about Bitcoin as a hedge might be more helpful. They can think of it as a a bit of insurance that they can put into a portfolio maybe. But at the end of the day, this is a very small portion of the population. They just have an outsized megaphone to telegraph their views. That's a great point. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. And it doesn't really matter. History will be the ultimate judge. But to your point, my conviction around Bitcoin, where I decided, you know, I'm no longer going to sit on cash. I'm not going to build up a savings account of cash. I'm going to build up maybe a a bit of a rainy day fund, but then I'm going to put it all into Bitcoin. That's a serious conviction when you decide, you know, you're going to take every little bit of spare money you have that you can't afford to, and you're going to put into some digital asset. That's a, that's not an easy decision to make this. It's a risky one potentially. And understanding Bitcoin as I did for 12, 11 years, just as a technology wasn't enough to give me conviction, right? I was still buying and selling my Bitcoin. I, I sat on some, but in my opinion, it was like sell when it's high, you know, and just make a little bit of money here, buy some gear. It wasn't a savings technology just because I, I understood the technology, but it wasn't a savings. That just didn't, that didn't click. When I came around and began to educate myself on the macro environmental picture, when I began to understand what makes an asset a hard asset, what makes money good money, what, you know, what makes gold attractive to people. When I begun to understand that, then I begun to understand what a pristine asset. It is sort of the peak of best money, but people just haven't really clicked yet because it's a really big thing to get your head around. But once I understood it from a economic standpoint, from a value standpoint, that's when my conviction really clicked. You know, that's when I really just went all in and understood the difference between Bitcoin and all the other cryptos, Bitcoin and fiat, Bitcoin and gold. And having an understanding of the technology side was important, but understanding the economic side is what what really made the difference. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, it almost sounds like you can intellectually understand something, but you only really get it once you've used it. And it either works for you and you love it, or it doesn't work for you and you move on. Yeah. And I was thinking about that because I attended a conference this week. It was called the TF Blockchain Summit in Seattle. 
It was put on by a company called TF Labs run by a fellow named Jonathan. And Jonathan is someone who I think he comes out of the startup brand marketing sort of space. So for him, Web3 and NFTs and things like that seem to make sense because they fit into a startup model of looking at the world. But for me, I see those things as affinity scamming with Bitcoin because I don't think that they have anywhere near the value of decentralized finance. And a lot of these projects, they do do some things, but at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is they're trying to create that community around them, which is the exit liquidity for the founders. That said, I met people there who Ethereum did very good things for them. Ethereum, maybe it didn't make them ungodly rich, but it it helped them out a lot because they were in it quite early. And talking to them, I realized, I wonder if I would have similar views if I'd come to Ethereum initially, because if you were into Ethereum and Bitcoin very early, many people did quite well for themselves. And it's hard to change your view after something has helped you financially, I think. Yeah, I'm processing that. Um, I mean, that doesn't necessarily hold true for me because I've had Ethereum since it was almost brand new. I've had a little. And there was a period of time, I think of 2020, somewhere around there, where Ethereum was appreciating at a higher rate than Bitcoin. Um, and so it was an actual better rich money for a bit. Um, but intrinsically, Ethereum is always, Ethereum to me has always felt like it's just not finished. So there's um, like as a squirrel and a harsh winter is coming and I've only been able to collect a very few amount of nuts. Like I didn't, I didn't get to go crazy. I'm not, I'm not going to be a, 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 you know, a well-fed squirrel over the winter. I just, when I only have a few places to stash the little dirty fiat that I do make, I can't bring myself to ever put it into Ethereum. And even though for a period of time, it was performing better than the Bitcoin. Sure. And maybe that speaks to the fact that our point of view is a combination of these emotional events, like we held something, the number went up, it made us feel good, and our reason and trying to understand the underlying things. Because I think that you've done a lot of work trying to understand the developer community around Ethereum. And spoiler alert, the more you understand that, the more terrifying Ethereum becomes. Well put. That is exactly it. Like, I still, I am surprised that I'm still shocked at what we come across. Um, yeah, so there's there's definitely that element to it. I think there is also, if you're a developer type, perhaps something in Ethereum appeals to you more. Um, and if you are somebody who maybe wants to build a technology that rides on top of a global platform, there's something in there about Ethereum potentially that appeals to you more. I can get all of that. Um, but I think... <sighs> What we, I think we as a Bitcoin community should really focus on is we should stop wasting all of our energy, huh, I guess I should say defending ESG attack. And instead, I think we should be debunking proof of stake as a terrible alternative. Because I think one of the things that I noticed this week was this trend over and over again, even coming from the White House this week, that proof of stake is equivalent in a lot of ways to proof of work. And I think this idea is easily, easily disproven. And I think when you... When you hammer on the fact that proof of stake means that the rich get richer and that it's a re-implementation of our existing system and that you're going to be handing control of Ethereum over to just a very small, like you could count them on your hand, amount of institutions, including places like Coinbase and FTX, which we do not like as organizations. I think if people were to understand that, perhaps they'd understand some of the inherent drawback of proof of stake. And I think as a Bitcoin community, we should be doing more work to draw a clear dividing line between Bitcoin and everything else. Bitcoin is nothing like Ethereum, and it's nothing like all of the altcoin from a value standpoint and from a technology stack standpoint. And the longer I am in this, more clear that is to me. And I feel like this is the number one issue presently facing Bitcoin. As we go into the second half of 2022, the number one issue is this, and this anti-crypto lobby basically hits on it is, it's just a change of code. Just change the code. 
Just change it from proof of work to proof of stake. No big deal. It's just a code update, bro. Well, I think I'm a little more positive than you on that point, because while there is some energy news, the, for example, New York State has prepared some legislation that if the governor signs it would ban further expansion of Bitcoin mining in New York State. But when I look at the actual article, it really doesn't seem like the governor will necessarily sign it because there is immediate job and economic costs to doing that. And I think the real concern in drafting that legislation was a study that purported to show that Bitcoin mining was increasing energy costs for households and businesses in upstate New York. I just don't think that could be the case because the whole point of Bitcoin mining is that to be profitable, it needs very cheap energy. And houses and homes and businesses pay a much higher energy rate than any large industrial consumer of energy. So when you add more industrial consumers of energy, what you're doing is you're actually reducing the unutilized energy on the grid. And that generally actually decreases prices for other homes and businesses. The difference is people think about Bitcoin mining like it's competing for energy with households and businesses, but that's not profitable for Bitcoin miners. They don't like to compete for energy. They need you to give them wasted energy. That's how they make money. So we'll see. But at the end of the day, if New York State goes hard on Bitcoin, it'll just go to Georgia or Texas or North Dakota. And the jobs angle is going to be a big one as the summer rolls on and unemployment starts to tick up. I think the jobs angle is going to be interesting and probably one that applies pressure at the state level. Just as an interesting aside, you know, I have a local friend here in Seattle who sent me a job listing for a quote unquote Web3 company that's hiring. The entire company's focus is just on creating a staking platform and then earning yield on all of the Ethereum that people stake on. That's what they do. That's the entire company. They just sit there and earn yield. They want to automate. The whole job is about automating all of the staking. So everything's done autonomously on the back end. And then they as a company just sit there doing nothing and earning yield, right? That's what an Ethereum-based company, what a Bitcoin-based company has to do is they have to deploy infrastructure. They have to get a data center. They have to negotiate with local regulators. They have to hire people. It becomes a business of two, 300 people strong. They become public. They have investors. They open up multiple locations. They expand, right? They create jobs. They create real things. They buy real estate. That's what Bitcoin mining does. Exactly. Bitcoin miners actually have to convert energy into hashes, energy into compute. So they're operating in the physical world Whereas the staking operation you're describing, its end state is it lives in AWS. You've got a back office. You minimize the headcount because the engineers you need to run that are expensive. So it employs few people. It doesn't build anything in a community. And it just funnels money directly to Amazon. So it's not too equitable. Isn't it something? And then to see all these people saying, well, you know, proof of stake is a better way to go. And it's incredible. They don't understand the dynamics of what they're talking about. That's why I get so upset. You can tell it's it's getting me more fired up than the energy stuff is. So at least I'm moving on. Sure. And I'm going to unfire you now. Okay. Because I'm actually reading the Biden administration's preliminary. Oh, yeah. You thought you spotted something there I would like, didn't you? Sure. So there's an article in Bloomberg, and the title is Crypto Miners Energy Climate Costs Draw White House Scrutiny. And frankly, I like the article. The concerns raised are essentially that if you're competing for energy with households and businesses, that's not necessarily great because it's increasing costs on already stressed consumers and businesses. And we don't want to increase emissions. Now, obviously, this standard is being unfairly applied 
to Bitcoin. But I think we should accept that that's kind of par for the course because, let's face it, Bitcoin is a giant middle finger to the U.S.-based monetary system. And you know what else? I just realized there's not a lot of other ways to attack it. No, it, it's it's pretty hard to hard to kill. This and is like their the best point. shot. It, it is. But the head of this White House Council on Climate and Environment or something, the, his uh, last name is Samaris. I think it was put together via that executive order that was earlier. Right. Let me just read a quote. We need to think about what would be the appropriate policy response under a world that shifted to proof of stake or a world that has some continuous mix of proof of stake and proof of work, Samaris said. Proof of work is energy intensive by design, but it also increases security. Oh. So the thing is, what this kind of speaks to me, the key is this increases security point. This is a person whose literal job is is attacking Bitcoin mining, kind of. And engaging with the problem, they must admit that proof of work has security guarantees that don't exist in proof of stake. At the end of the day, does the U.S. government really care that your decentralized private money that is directly competing with the U.S.-based financial system is secure? Of course not. But it's like his mind is being changed as he's attacking it. That's kind of how Bitcoin works. Well, it also, it sort of suggests that it's the beginning of recognizing there is some value and that there is a difference between proof of stake and proof of, and to get that kind of acknowledgement at the White House level does feel, I don't love that they're even kind of looking at this part of it. I don't even really want them, you know, I don't know. I don't really like the idea of a bunch of more regulation coming down because the natural incentives of Bitcoin mining have, have led it to uh, reach nearly 60% renewables now in the United States just by using natural market dynamic. It's something like 57, 58% of Bitcoin mining in the United States is now powered by or, uh, you know, captured off gas. Just really fantastic. Moving on to our economic section, we have two long pieces. One is Arthur Hayes' latest article, which is a very amusing read that ties together inflation, Fed policy, and the way that financial markets are interested or afraid of risk assets, depending on what the Fed is doing. This is a good one. And I think this is this right there is is good to wrap your head around if you don't understand right now why all the asset prices are down. Or if somebody says, hey, man, Bitcoin's down. I bet you feel like a fool. I got that message the other day. Um, and they don't understand the macro picture going on necessarily or how inflation's going and why inflation's going so high right now. This would probably help them understand that, right? Arthur's article dovetails really nicely with the 2022 In Gold We Trust report. This is a report that comes out every year. It's produced by a German fellow named Ronnie who runs a, I think, kind of a private hedge fund type business. And this is a guy who is obsessed with gold. And so he produces a 400-page report about gold every year. But it's actually just this beautiful macroeconomic primer. So if you want to level up your economics understanding, read these two articles. Read the report, read the article. There's a short version of the report too. Now, what's generally interesting about it is that Arthur points out that the way that policy happens in the U.S. is it's kind of driven by popular sentiment. It's actually quite short-term. There's not a lot of long-term planning. So most of our policy is very, let's say, reactionary. And he shows a chart which demonstrates that when you look at inflation and you basically subtract inflation from average wage increases in America, American workers are earning less money 
in the past year than they have for the past decade. So basically, wages are going down faster than at any point since like 2000. So as people get put under economic pressure, this makes them upset. And this forces politicians to somehow placate them, respond in some way that will prevent them from voting them out of office. That means the Fed needs to turn to a more dovish monetary policy. That means cutting interest rates again and buying a lot of U.S. government debt so that the government can basically provide subsidies to citizens so they're less upset around fuel prices, food prices, and and everything like that. So the argument here is that the Fed and the government policy as a whole can only push these things so far before politically the representatives have to respond or 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 there will start to leverage the upset public that is just getting decimated by the increased prices and this chart that you uh, will have linked here it really shows it like once you factor for inflation wages are are basically down below where they were during the 2008 crash i mean they're certainly falling at a higher rate than they were in 2000. So this is a very serious situation. This is a scary chart for any politician. And what it kind of speaks to is that while the Federal Reserve is talking a tough game, saying that they're going to tame inflation, essentially by causing a recession, because raising interest rates uh, to prevent inflation, what you're doing is you're basically reducing the availability of lending for businesses. And so as businesses lend or can borrow less, they tend to scale back operations. So you're creating a recession. That's what's happening. And we're probably in a recession right now. But what Arthur is saying is that this policy is not really politically sustainable. The Fed is not a computer. There are a bunch of people who respond to political pressure. And while the Biden administration is sort of signaling that they are going to leave the Fed alone and let them raise rates and crush the economy to reduce inflation. At the end of the day, it's probably not going to fulfill the Biden administration's goals of not being totally hammered in the midterms. So we may see a a pretty quick reversal of the Fed tightening policy. Now, Arthur talks about this in the context of gold and Bitcoin, because his general viewpoint is that we are at the end of a debt cycle. And so there is simply too much debt in the world to raise interest rates, because as you raise interest rates, there's all this debt that's Uh, has a lower interest rate that gets paid off. But we're not in a world where you like pay off your debt and then you're good. These are entities that need to continuously roll their debt. So all that 1% yield debt rolls off and then now rates are at 2%. They now have to issue more debt at 2%. So even if interest rates aren't going up, over time, more and more debt starts getting locked in at this higher interest rate. And it just creates this financial pressure that eventually kind of ignites the debt boom. The thing to wrap your head around is if the price of money was at 0% and then now it's gone up 0.75%, either way, it actually works out to be almost an 800% increase in the cost. Right. And so the important thing is not the raw percentages, 0.25% versus 1.5% or anything like that. The issue is the change between 0.5% and 1.5%. That's a very large delta. Yeah, because you're going from nothing. Nothing, exactly. So around the zero bound, math breaks and bond markets are are math-based and they are breaking as a result of these decades of low interest rates and now suddenly we need to raise them. Now, So if you're rolling that debt and you're going from free money to money that has had a nearly 800% price increase. You get a financial crisis. Yeah. And that's probably what we're heading for. Now, 
Arthur thinks about this in terms of what trades he can put on because Arthur is a degenerate trader. We say that with love, though we're still pretty sore about all that Bitcoin we gave you on BitMEX, Arthur. You should probably come on the show and tell us to our face that it wasn't your trading bot that was liquidating leveraged customers that took it. Sounds kind of sus to me. I think he actually admitted that in an interview once. We should confirm it. Come on, or send us a boost. I know. You know what? Send the Bitcoin back in a boost and we'll forgive you. There you go. There you go. We can't stay mad at someone who memes so well. (laughs) Basically, Arthur thinks that the next stage of Fed loosening will be like our next risk on market. And that's the era of million dollar Bitcoin and 10 to $20,000 gold. That's his his theory at the moment. Wow, ten dollars to $20,000 gold would be impressive to see because it's just basically been parked for a decade. Yeah, and that actually leads us to the In Gold We Trust report, which is really interesting because Ronnie is actually a gold person that's not anti-Bitcoin, which is refreshing because it can be a little irritating to hear Peter Schiff complain about Bitcoin in a stupid way. But what Ronnie does is he actually combines gold and Bitcoin to basically harvest the volatility of Bitcoin and somehow stabilize that volatility with gold. At least that's his marketing. So what Ronnie points out is that while gold has not performed as the macro hedge that people thought it would, and for a quick recap, I think gold was maybe around 1600 or something before the March 2020 crash. It briefly pops up to, I want to say, 1850 and then spends the next year kind of flirting with going over 2000 and then crashing down to 1800 again. And so the gold bugs who are basically waiting for a catastrophe because that's their, in their thesis, that's when gold really shows its value because it's a, an asset without counterparty risk. Did I get all the numbers wrong? Nope. It's looking right. You're looking right. As we record right now, gold's at 1851. Okay. And what was the high? It got up to uh, two grand, 2070. Yeah, because essentially a lot of people thought, hey, we've got war in Ukraine, we've got an energy crisis, things are crazy, we should be seeing $5,000 gold, what's going on? So Ronnie's take is, look, like the counterparty of gold, if you're comparing gold to something, it's the dollar. And the dollar is actually strengthening, so gold is actually hitting all-time highs in all the non-dollar currencies, but in the dollar, gold is kind of moving sideways. So my take on this is that I think that there's something slightly different happening in the sense that when Ronnie talks about gold, I think he's someone who has his own vault of gold. His uh, hedge fund or whatever it is is based in Liechtenstein. That's not really uh, poor real estate. So I'm just imagining he lives in a castle with like a vault full of gold. So for him, gold is a physical asset that we would think of Bitcoin the same way because our hardware wallet is like our little vault full of digital gold. But actually, most gold in the world that's traded is in ETFs. And ETFs are paper products. They're synthetic products that are somehow tied to gold in vaults being held by some counterparty somewhere. And is there really the gold in the vault? Who knows? So I wonder if because gold has kind of turned into this paper asset, if it just doesn't really trade as the the risk hedge anymore because a paper asset doesn't have that non-counterparty risk quality that a physical gold bar does. Well, and it seems like you're sort of diluting the scarcity too. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is a concern that has been voiced around Bitcoin 
and the Bitcoin ETF or GBDC, things like that. Because as Bitcoin flows into regulated entities like ETFs and trusts, it doesn't flow out. And so this is another attack vector. If I were in charge of the attack on Bitcoin, I would encourage its financialization. And I would say, look, we're going to create million-dollar Bitcoin in the short term, but in the long term, we're going to create ETFs. And all the Bitcoin will go there, and then we'll just regulate it. We'll control it. But that would at least drive up scarcity. So the people outside that ETF market would still be dealing with less Bitcoin, so the price would go up. Right. I mean, it would definitely change the incentives. So you might bifurcate the market. You might turn it into a market where there's regulated Bitcoin that's like a financial asset, and then there's black market Bitcoin. And so I wonder if black market Bitcoin would be more or less valuable than regulated Bitcoin. I imagine initially it would be cheaper and then over time people would realize and it would be much more expensive. That would be my (laughs) base case. I'd see that too. Yeah, then you're going to have the people like, I have a Satoshi coin. I've got an Elon coin, you know, and then those are worth even more. And the fungibility goes out the window. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Or maybe not. But uh, we'll see. I'm not surprised, though, that you have that concern about ETF because I think that does that does line up with something I've been. ETFs certainly make the game theory more complicated and mm-hmm. hard to think about. Right. Who knows? I mean, let's be honest. This is all a big experiment. And I'm not saying that to discourage anyone. I'm just saying that to put into context, there's this new technology. It's barely a decade old and it's upending the entire world. And the world is so chaotic and full of uncertainty that a lot of people think that this crazy new technology is your best option. This is a crazy situation. This is very concerning. Yeah. I'm Shows not concerned. how bad off we are. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. We're, we're very concerned about the state of the world. And that's kind of what. Yeah. I mean, I think long term, I think, I don't know. But by the time we're getting into the early 2030s, could be I, I could eat these words easily. But I think by the time we're getting to the early 2030s, it, it just will seem like a waste of effort to throw your slave wages at coin. Like the the amount I could buy right now at 29,000 is going to seem like so much more than in by the 2030s. Like it just won't even like daily cash averaging just won't even really make sense. You're just going to be getting a handful of sats. I think you'll just buy the sats you need and use them, you know? Yeah. I mean, or you might be earning them or they right, might, they right. might be the basis of your national currency. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's it. The future is yet to be written, but all we know is that it's probably going to involve Bitcoin one way. And a favorable article about the SEC. The SEC has finally filed an insider trading suit against someone in crypto, and it was an NFT trader. Yeah. Yeah. So wasn't it like one of the like the CTO or something like that of OpenSea? I'm sorry, I forgot exactly the position. I think it was head of product. Okay. But okay. I mean, it's a pretty basic fraud. This person had inside knowledge about what NFTs were going to be promoted on the front page of OpenSea, and so he bought them beforehand. I think the more noteworthy thing here is that the SEC is bothering, right? Like this shows you, and I think the other thing is, is that this is from a little while ago, right? This is from 2021. I think the actual insider training occurred. I think the tip was sooner than that, but I remember when this person was fired. Yeah. When it was discovered. Oh, and okay. so it takes a while for charges to be filed. That's kind of my point, though. It's like, what other cases are from like a year ago that they're just now getting around to? There could be more. This could be the start of a little bit of house cleaning. Yeah, it's great because there's this belief in crypto that because it's quote unquote unregulated, there's no such thing as insider trading. And so all of these VCs and hedge funds that are doing early deals with development teams, they're getting a bunch of tokens and then they're hyping them via their media channels and then dumping them on retail. All of these people are operating under the assumption that, yeah, this would be insider trading in TradFi, but this is DeFi, bro. So 
I like to see the SEC going after people who are manipulating markets and acting on inside knowledge because Bitcoin has no inside knowledge. Bitcoin is open. You know, like any decision that you or I make around Bitcoin, everyone in the world has access to the same information, basically. So we're never going to get charged with insider trading because we're not operating in a permission system where there are insiders. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen, but the sales numbers for NFTs have absolutely crashed. They've cratered. Like the sales activity is is completely down on these blockchains that were just basically NFT chains. And I I think we're going to see years before we actually get to a decent use of NFTs, if ever. And while I'm just throwing out hot takes here, what do you think of this one? I think history will look back at NFTs, especially like the Bored Ape NFTs, and they'll look at that as the peak of the fiat craze. 100%. I think that crypto is a fiat phenomenon. If you're in crypto, you're all about fiat gains. You're all about USD gains. And the crypto space as it is has only existed in an environment where the Fed was doing quantitative easing. The technology hasn't been around pre-quantitative easing. Yeah, exactly. When you move from a monetary expansion to a monetary contraction, you don't put your money in kittens on a blockchain or robot chicken NFTs on a blockchain. You put it into real goods, energy, gold. We would like to include Bitcoin in that list. We think Bitcoin is a real good, but we have to see because we're moving into a era of real material scarcity. There's an energy crisis. There seems to be a building food crisis. So in a world of scarcity, is Bitcoin really scarce? Is it really in demand when energy is scarce, food is scarce? Is Bitcoin also scarce in that environment? We'll, we'll see. This is a great test for Bitcoin, I think. Yep. It's never seen anything like this before. Now, this brings us to tokenomics. Tokenomics is our weekly dose of schadenfreude, where we look at altcoins, NFTs, all that silly stuff that we would never buy that we discourage anyone from buying, and we try to find something funny or at least educational about it. Or this time, just a great deal, you guys. You could invest and get a 40% APY on, on your, you know, get, what, what else could go wrong? A 40%, I'm going to put my money in right now. I'm going all in. But hold on, Chris. <laughs> Didn't we say last week that a 20% APY on Luna was a red flag? Uh, anything, anything that's nearly that high, I'd say, is a is a burning red flag. Yeah, is there a is there like a more dramatic version of a red flag? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we of course are describing Hex. Now, Hex is an ERC twenty token created by a man named Richard Hart. Not his real name. I think his real name is Schuler or something. And he changed his name because. Another uh, title he owns is the Spam King. So this was one of those guys who spammed your email with ads for, who knows, penis enlargement, all that kind of garbage. That's how Richard Hart initially made his money. And he apparently is linked to a Panamanian criminal network that deals with essentially money laundering, theft, extortion, and blackmail. So I don't know if that's demonstrated, but... He has a very, very unsettling and uh, deserved bad reputation. Now, what he did was Richard actually got on video heckling Fake Toshi. So Fake Toshi is a derogatory name for, God, what is his name? Craig Wright. Craig Wright, sorry. Mm -hmm. Craig Wright is a goofy Australian who's been pretending to be Satoshi for years. In our opinion, because he is very litigious. Right. In our opinion. <laughs> He's suing Peter Cormack, the... The what Bitcoin did. 
guy right now. Yeah, I think the sh- the suit is over. Oh, is it? Wow. Yeah, but they they have to wait for the judgment. Yeah, Peter said it was very stressful because essentially Craig is your sort of legacy fiat nut job that weaponizes the legal system against people saying things he doesn't like. And liable is in the UK is so much easier for the person bringing the case to win than the person defending the case. Right. This is actually the famous McMillions case, not McMillions. There was a case where a bunch of activists were handing out flyers that said McDonald's was killing the rainforest and you know, what a terrible thing. And McDonald's sued them in England because English libel laws are designed to protect aristocrats from common people slandering them. So it's it's basically like you have to prove every point in a court of law, which is a higher burden of proof than anywhere else. And Craig loves going to court. Because it gives him engagement. It gets his name out there. I think that the last six years of politics have taught us that even if you're a total dingus, you're completely stupid. If you get out there and your name is in the news, a lot of people just read the headline and they don't quite get the fact that the person behind it is a total joke. So he views it as a chance to promote himself, in my opinion. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) We need to add that because he will sue us. And we both share that opinion. Right. And we're allowed to have opinions, Craig. Now, Richard Hart came up last week because he is very active on Twitter and he has a super cringy account where he shows off his expensive watches and cars. And he also shares charts of how his scam token, Hex, also our opinion, Richard, is outperforming every other asset in the universe. Um, It's not because he chooses his timelines so that it doesn't incorporate how Hex is crashing lately. He zooms in just at the right point. Right. It's like the Hex world ended, you know, somewhere mid-2021, and <laughs> the last couple months don't exist on that chart. Well, it's funny because, like, some of the things he tweets would scare me away from Like, he tweeted one point, Hex.com is up 466,000%, I'm sorry, in 603 days. If I saw that, that would be a ginormous... Yeah, that's the, that's the top of a bubble. Yeah, exactly. Like, I would sell that, for sure. <laughs> that's the time to sell. I wanted to bring this up because Hex is promoting itself using this crazy high AP. So that's one red flag of a typical scam. People love yield. It's such an easy way. It's like putting out honey. Now, Hex also does this interesting thing where it creates a affinity scam with a legacy financial product. So Hex bills itself as a certificate of deposit on a blockchain. And the way a certificate deposit works, I think we actually discussed this more. You would go to a bank back in the days of normal interest rates, and you'd basically give the bank a short-term loan. So I'd give the bank $1,000 and they would hold it for a year and they'd give me like 5 or 6% interest on that $1,000. Now, Hex does something similar. You lock up Hex and you get interest on it. And it's like a certificate of deposit, except it's not. So what's happening here? Well, when I give $1,000 to a bank, theoretically, they actually pool all of the CDs that they get and all of their other sources of funding. And now they have millions of dollars and they go out and they invest in businesses. And those businesses pay a higher interest rate than the 6% I'm getting. Maybe they're paying 10 quite high. So basically, I've lent money to the bank and they've lent it out. But somewhere it has to create real financial activity. It has to create more value to pay off the interest 
on the loan. Now, Hex doesn't do that. Hex just mints more Hex to pay off the quote-unquote interest you got from locking it up. Now, there are two interesting things about this. The first thing is that Hex is designed around getting you to lock it up. It's kind of like proof of stake. So it's all about getting the community, read exit liquidity, to lock up their coins, make them illiquid so they can't sell them. This allows the major holder, which is Richard, who allegedly owns like 80% of the Hex, to sell it without other people being able to panic at, at, at the price falling and sell it too. The other thing about it is that Hex is not necessarily a Ponzi scheme under existing law. And their website has a whole section that describes how it's not a Ponzi scheme. This is another red flag. When someone has to tell you many times and very clearly and very specifically why they're not a Ponzi scheme, it's kind of a clue that they might be a Ponzi. Now, in the case of Hex, what's going on is in a typical Ponzi scheme, I pay out investors with other investors' money. Common term is you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Now, how does Hex do? Hex actually creates more money to pay out investors. So Hex robs everybody. Hex actually turns a Ponzi scheme into an inflationary Ponzi. And this is structurally a little bit different than traditional Ponzi schemes, simply because there wasn't the technology to sort of create private monies out of thin air before. Now, is this going to protect Hex from the long arm of the law? I don't know. I mean, it takes the law a while to uh, sort of wind up to to punch a, a bad project. So they might be able to operate for a while longer. But at the end of the day, what people forget is the courts are not stupid. Prosecutors are not stupid. They understand what's going on. They understand that someone's benefiting. So even though the details might not exactly meet the traditional definition of a Ponzi scheme, anyone can see that there's this thing, this guy's promoting it, he's making tons of money, and everyone who buys it is losing money. So there's probably some fire behind all that smoke. Which brings us to Bitcoin education. We have two articles this week, Bitcoin Optech and an article called Aggressive Case Bitcoin. This week's Bitcoin Optech is pretty short. Essentially, it's a more experimentation with silent payments which I think was first described in newsletter 194. Silent payments is a technology that is very similar to how Monero does payments. And what it's fixing is the linkability between sender and receiver. If I give you my public key for an address and you send a transaction to that address, it's pretty clear that my address has received your transaction. Now, if an observer knows one or both of us, it becomes pretty clear what our relationship is. But with silent payments, my address is tweaked by the sender. So they basically take my public key and they tweak it slightly. And now I can find that address because I know the tweaking process. But for an outside observer, it just looks like someone's sending something to an address and they have no idea whose address that is. Right. That's kind of a clever little system. Yeah, I think it was invented by Ruben Somsen. And Ruben Somsen, he came up with the concept of space chain and also soft chain and now silent payments. So he tends to start things with S's, which is why he's called the Bitcoin source. Mm, well, I like the name. The other news in this optech is that there have been some minor bugs that were fixed in both Ledger and Trezor devices, that there is a new LND release candidate. LND, which stands for Lightning Network Daemon, is the most popular consumer Lightning node implementation. Umbral, which we use to listen for this show's boosts, is running a LND Lightning node in the background. And I think that's it. 
pretty short this week. Hmm. Sometimes that's nice. Now, have you read this progressive case for Bitcoin article or? No, this is the first time I've seen it, but I like the concept. I feel like progressives should be all in on Bitcoin. Exactly. Now, I think this is part of the reason that I thought it might be interesting to have a podcast. This idea that every cohort of adoption needs a, a new message or something that kind of speaks directly to where they're at and where the world is at that moment. Now, Bitcoin obviously has a history of kind of libertarian thought. The first Bitcoiners were cypherpunks who were kind of like digital libertarians. Then there were real world libertarians, gold bugs. And so just to cut to the chase, these are predominantly white male groups. This article is saying, listen, Bitcoin is powerful, but if we recreate the society where white men generally have all the money and power again in Bitcoin, what do we really do there? And I want to be clear, this is not an attack on white men. I happen to be a white man. (laughs) (laughs) What it is, is it's saying, we want to make sure that everyone feels comfortable to participate in Bitcoin and they don't miss out. It would be a real bummer if people who could really benefit from Bitcoin didn't participate because they felt like they weren't the right kind of person for that community. And I think it's uh, quite well written, but the TLDR is, listen, we need to boost people who are not being included right now. So if you know of people who are on the edge, who maybe are, I don't know, I mean, I'm almost promoting affirmative action for Bitcoin (laughs) here, but I mean, just be affirmative. You know, I wonder if it won't play out like it has in the cannabis industry. So initially, right, the people that predominantly had the resources and the money to buy the raw asset and to buy the land, a lot of it was like Microsoft executives and Boeing executives. And a lot of them were white guys, right? But then as, the, as it became an industry and businesses started opening up and franchised, uh, a lot of the hiring, a lot of the jobs, a lot of that has been in minorities and specifically women. There's a lot of women in the cannabis industry. It's like a lot more women in the cannabis industry than the average. I, can't, I don't know all the numbers off the top of my head. But as it became an industry where essentially there's an economy around legalized cannabis here, those new jobs, the new stores that opened up, the new markets that got created were opened up and created by women. As, as it became more of an industry. And I wonder if that's how people, you know, medium income, uh, you know, middle class, I wonder if that's how they'll flourish if they don't buy the asset. That's a good point. And I've met some really impressive female Bitcoiners. For example, LND, Lightning Network Demon, the most common Lightning Node implementation is produced by Lightning Labs. And the CEO is Elizabeth Stark. So there are and always have been women in Bitcoin. But at the same time, I think that the majority of adopters, and certainly the loudest voices on crypto Twitter tend to be men. And I just think it's something to keep in the back of your mind. I'm the father of a daughter. And, you know, I think that there's some truth to the statement that I don't feel that gender is a zero-sum game. I'm not lifted up if the women in my life are pushed down. I think we rise up together. So I'm just throwing that out there. I think some people might find this too political or something. At the same time, I think it's important to think about trying to keep an open mind and make a community that's as welcoming and helpful to many different types of people, even if they might not be the exact same as you. And the moment of opportunity, at least when it comes to directly owning the asset, is now. It really is. It's going to be these few years. This is the time for people to take action. For sure. I mean, another thought is that, and this is a quote from the article, a lack of diversity leads to monolithic thinking, which stunts innovation and adoption. I have to 100% agree. You need to have everybody at the table to really 
look at problems from every perspective. One of the things, too, that I like to think about, but it's really hard to really think through, but Bitcoin is a worldwide, and we have a very Western perspective on this. And, I, and it's, there's, so there's going to be there's going to be so many cultures, people that are involved in one. We see this like in Linux well, and it, it has been tricky, you know. One last point is that, and you reminded me of that, the block released a report, basically a big survey about Bitcoin usage worldwide. And one thing they found is that the male preference for Bitcoin or the sort of majority male Bitcoin community is kind of a first world problem. In developing countries, you actually see in general more women who are positive around Bitcoin. Right. Well, they manage the family finances in a lot of cases too, right? Isn't that part of it? Also, they might be excluded from the banking system. So Mm, right. I think there might be more women in Afghanistan who use Bitcoin than men because women in Afghanistan simply don't have access to banking there. Yeah, same with El Salvador. Something like, wasn't it something like 70% of the population was unbanked when they lost Bitcoin? 70%. Could you imagine the majority of, more than the majority of the country doesn't have a bank account. Like that's when I say when we have Western financial privilege, that's what I'm talking about. Like my kids don't have bank accounts and that feels right. And they're, they, I don't know, like the whole thing is, it's hard for us to wrap our head around. It is a worldwide technology and there's different cultures and there's completely different levels of finance all throughout. Yeah, that's a good point. Which brings us to feedback. Remember, you can get in touch at BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. You can also send in a boost using a podcasting 2.0 app like Castomatic on iOS or Fountain.fm on Android and iOS. And, you know, if you don't want to switch podcast apps, Breeze, B-R-E-E-Z, Breeze.technology. It's like a lightning store front end application, and it'll also let you send boost to a podcast without having to switch your main podcast app. Oh, well, that's a great use case for Breeze. Maybe I'll try that. Yeah. If you want to run a lightning node in your pocket. <laughs> it gets a little hot. <laughs> it can. <laughs> but then you get to boost like Crypto Kyle did 500 sats four days ago. Says, I love the table of contents in the intro. Great to get a TLDR of what's in the episode. Okay. So that's a vote for more structure. All right. I'm hearing that a lot. Good. Good. It's good to get that feedback. We weren't sure. Great. And then we have 22 sats. Hey from John. You know, I think I sent this boost. Just checking your channels? <laughs> no, I think I was with someone, and I was trying to explain boosts, and then I sent this. You I'm, were pretty cheap, 22 sats. <laughs> I'm a cheapskate. Your dad's a cheapskate. <laughs> All right, well, uh, I guess Dylan is uh, making up for it with 3,500 sats three days ago. Big spender. Yeah, that's actually awesome. Are they right? Forget about Telegram and get XMPP server and use Omeo. I think I'm saying that right. There's modern XMPP apps out there like Dino uh, on the desktop, Conversations on Android. It works great with my family. We use it every day. XMPP is the original chat protocol. Google Chat was even based on it for a little while. And the idea is is cross-platform instant messaging of like AOL days. That's literally like the era it came out of. Uh, but it's cross-server. You host it yourself. It's nice. It, it, in a lot of ways, what the different chat systems we're recreating today, uh, XMPP could solve. There are folks out there like Alex Gates and others involved in podcasting 2.0 that are investigating XMPP as a back-end option for cross podcasting 2.0 comment so you could comment say you say you're a, a fountain fm user you could leave a comment and somebody on podverse could see it that actually isn't possible right now because fountain's using different comments but podverse supports multi-cross app comment and the technology to pull that off is still being discussed but they want it to be an open source protocol oh that's really interesting i've heard of xmpp but i've actually only gotten into self-hosted communication pretty recently so 
right now my preferred solution is Matrix, which was developed after XMPP. I don't really know what the trade-offs are. I know that Matrix is, I believe, more popular than XMPP solutions. It could be. It's hard to really know. You know, XMPPs, there's like a lot of internal corporate chats that are just running on it that nobody, you know, nobody knows about. Or like in the case of our booster here, family chats and, you know, nobody really knows about it. So there could be a lot of that. Matrix, though, is really benefiting from a network effect. Every week I see a new open source project announcing that they're... And our next boost is from Bitcoin Lizard with 2,500 sats. Oh, big spender. He was listening, or she, sorry. I tend to gender our guests. Gotta gotta check that privilege. <laughs> you know, you probably have a pretty good batting average, though, based, oh, it, <laughs> based on the demographics out there. I know, but we don't want to create like this self-reinforcing yeah, yeah. cycle. In fact, if there's ladies listening in, let us know so we can start adjusting our perspectives. Right, and maybe... Boost. I know that uh, pronouns get a lot of people up in arms, and I don't love the neutral pronoun they because it seems grammatically incorrect to me. Yeah, I agree. I would actually be fine with a neutral pronoun. I believe that German has one, in. So it's not him or her. In is like a indeterminate gender. Because actually in German, the gender of an object affects its grammatical conjugation. So there are situations where you could misspeak if you didn't know the gender, so you can then default to neutral gender. I don't think you're going to get better than they. I don't think it's too late. Ships, that ship, it's not only sailed. That ship is like soaring as like a time machine that flies through space. Yeah, it's like it's like out there in the <laughs> yeah. Andromeda galaxy yes, already. Yeah, that's how sailed that ship is. Now that said, German is not a woke language because actually the word for girl, Mädchen, is neutral gender. It's not feminine. Women only, the, the word uh, Fräulein, I think, only becomes feminine when she's married or something. There's some okay. weird, like some, some weird kind of baggage there. I'm like, I'm trying to remember my sound of music dialogue, trying to like remember. They always said Fräulein. Fräulein. Okay, now I can't even say it. We should, I, I, I'm going to mess this, this up. Is, this Floorlein. Is, there, I got it. Right? You know? No. Did you say fluorine? <laughs> no, not fluoride. Fräulein. Fräulein. <laughs> but this is actually podcasting 2.0 trolling because we have German listeners, and now they will be motivated to boost in and correct all of the misstatements Next that I just made. Next level thinking. Nice. Yeah. Very, very nice. I'm sorry to our German listeners. Did we get through uh, Lizard's uh No, no. It was boost? a total aside. So this is the message. And Bitcoin Lizard was listening to our starting self-custody deep dive. One thing to note about BIP39 seed phrases, the words alone are not always enough to recover your funds. The derivation path is also required, walletsrecovery.org. Hey, that's so helpful, though we did have that in the episode. I'm pretty sure you said that, yeah, but it is good to reinforce it. Walletsrecovery.org provides the default derivation path for a long list of wallets. In practice, you can usually get away with not having the derivation path, but the path may be required if you are attempting the recovery of your funds on a different wallet than the one you generated the cease phrase on. That's so succinct and, and clear. Thank you. I recommend recording the path along with the words. That is a great habit. So on your seed phrase backup, when you write down those 24 words, you should also write down the derivation path. And so that'll be, it'll be like mh forward slash zero apostrophe slash zero apostrophe slash one or something, something like that. You can see that when some wallets are made, but other wallets may hide that from you. Uh, Bitcoin Lizard boosted in a second time with 5,000 sats, more than the last one, saying, ah, I just finished episode 19. <laughs> uh, and and uh, he's pointing us to uh, 
outputdescriptors.org. So I'll read the boost, but it's outputdescriptors.org is the ultimate website. Uh, I should have listened to the the latest episode before boosting. You explained BIP39 perfectly uh, in episode 19. I should attempt to drop some knowledge. I'll direct you to output descriptors. Output descriptors are an attempt to solve the BIP39 issue of missing derivation information in the wallet backup. Output descriptors are more prominently implemented in the popular Moon Wallet. That's M-U-U-N. Worst name in Bitcoin. Uh-huh. Moon Wallet, although a number of other wallets support them. So go to outputdescriptors.org. Love the show. Keep it up. Bitcoin Lizard, thank you. Thank you so much. That's such a productive comment. I really don't know anything about output descriptors, so I'm going to go to that website and learn more. Yeah. I also appreciate the double boost to follow up on that. That's great. I know. Like escalating... Yeah, yeah, I think it escalated because we got it. You know, they were like, oh, oh they, yeah, they covered it. I covered okay. it. So I got to give them a, I got it. Like, I think that's why. See, we're incentivized to do well. Yeah, we earned that one. Or infuriate. <laughs> yeah, that's also <laughs> great, though. Again, apologies to Germany. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, after a few episodes, we'll have some corrections next week. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a show, unless you have something no, else. I think that's it. Great. Like I said, there's a lot going on this week. It didn't seem like it on the surface. I know. That was a surprise busy show. Yeah. I wish I'd gotten a chance to talk more about the In Gold We Trust report. It's really fascinating. So I'll just plug it again. If you have an interest in reading about economics or want to up your game, that report is just a great resource. Read it through. You'll just be more knowledgeable. Yeah. You know, I'll give a plug for our Matrix chat room because there's a lot of stuff during the week. It really makes for a good companion to this show. And so our Matrix server is colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com. And on there, you'll find our Matrix chat room on the jupiterbroadcasting.com server. We have two. We have one for just general Bitcoin discussion, and then we have one for really like questions and answer and that kind of stuff. And we'll have those links in the show notes. So thank you for listening to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, June 3rd, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Gad. Did I say Gad or Dad? I think Gad. Okay, Dad. And I'm here with Chris. With me, Chris. You. See you next time. Can I sit down now? <laughs>